Welcome back to the Exit Vila podcast. I'm Adam Cohen alongside Henry Winklehig. Henry, how are you doing tonight, boss? Adam, uh, I usually, I like to start optimistically to the, to the how I'm doing question, but my college basketball team is the Kentucky Wildcats, and we fell to one and six today with a loss to our arch rival Louisville Cardinals. So I have been much better, my friend. I, I'm in some some sports sadness right now, but I'm still happy to come on the show and and talk about baseball with you, and still happy about the holiday season. It's it's a happy time of year, so I'm I'm not going to try to be too much uh, too much of a drag or anything. But I have been better, buddy. But but how are you? I'm doing well, and I'm sorry to hear about that of your Kentucky Wildcats. Actually, a couple of players that I broadcasted on the team that I was with this summer were go to Kentucky. So I'm sure they were kind of upset by that too. But nevertheless, happy holidays to you and to all our Bat Sports page viewers. So hope you guys are having a good holiday season. And yeah, it's pretty crazy. 2020 is almost over and pretty Woo! wacky year. <laughs> Thank goodness, man. Uh, hopes for a much, much better 2021 ahead. And I mean, it, can it really be worse? Uh, fingers crossed for no, but definitely happy holidays. Everybody enjoy this time of year. It, it is a well-deserved uh, breather, perhaps at the end of a very tough year. So everybody enjoy this time with your family and enjoy the, and it's not a whole lot of baseball news, but th there is some stuff going on to talk about. And that's why we're here to break it down tonight. There actually was a Christmas Eve trade deal, nevertheless, and that was Josh Bell being sent to the Washington Nationals. And in return, the Pirates, who originally had Bell, they got Will Crow and Eddie Yeen, both the Nationals' number three prospect and Crow, and Yeen in the Nationals' number six organizational prospect. So right off the bat, this looks like a pretty nice move for the Nationals because they don't really have too much power, too much thump in their lineup besides Juan Soto and Trey Turner. And Josh Bell had 37 home runs in his all-star appearance in 2019. But it does come with some caveats, of course. Absolutely, man. And and Josh Bell, switch hitter, power hitter, and definitely, like you said, adding a little bit to that lineup, which definitely was missing Anthony Rendon last year with his departure heading out west to the Angels. And I think it makes sense in the sense, too, that the Nationals have very strong starting pitching uh, still with Strasburg, Scherzer, and Corbin at that top three there. So maybe they're they're kind of in a pretty good position to um, give away some starting pitching prospects and improve that lineup a little bit. So I think it does definitely make them better for, for 2021. But long term, man, I, 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 mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard to say. We don't know what those prospects are going to look like yet, but. I'm not the biggest Josh Bell fan in the world. Um, I know that that start of the 2019 season was pretty incredible, and he, he did kind of fall off a cliff in the second half of that season. I'm interested to see what he looks like in a better lineup that can protect him a little bit more. But I, you know, I'm, I'm not like off the off the bat. I'm not like uh, this isn't a slam dunk win for the Nationals for me at least. It seems it's not the best deal. They didn't go out and sign a top-tier first baseman by any means. And more into what you were saying about Bell's struggles in the second half of 2019, he had a 780 OPS, which isn't bad. But when you're a one-dimensional power hitter, that isn't that great. And then in 2020, followed up with a 6-9 OPS. So he has really been struggling as of late. Dev charts and steamers, both these 
predictions for both give predictions for the following season. They say he'll hit 26 homers, bat around 250, have a 350 on base percentage, still a good player, but maybe not the 35 plus homer guy that the Pirates had a year ago. And maybe not somebody that you clear out the farm system for either. Those those projections sound pretty average to me, man. Yeah, it's he's not the best player. And even by war, he was only worth like 1.1, which is below average for starting player. So, and that and it probably comes from the fact that he's not a good defender. It, it still helps him nonetheless because they don't really have too many key offensive guys in our lineup currently. Andrew Stevenson looks to be their leadoff hitter, the top of the order, which really isn't great. Or they have Victor Robles at the bottom of the order, and he's limited offensively. He can steal some bases, but doesn't have too much pop and hits for a low average. So bread and butter of the lineup, of course, is Trey Turner and Juan Soto. So at least they have a nice 2-3-4. But besides that, it's still not a long-term and big fits for the Nationals. Right. Yeah. I don't think this is, this isn't like an Anthony Rendon level replacement. And I agree with you. I don't think that it's a long-term fix, but I think it could be a pretty decent short-term band-aid. I think he instantly probably slots in as their third best hitter in their lineup, uh, which maybe says more about the state of the Nationals lineup than it does about how good Josh Bell is. I was trying to like rack my brain thinking going into this episode, is there another team in the NL East other than the Marlins where Josh Bell would be the third best hitter? Hmm. I guess, well, it depends with the Phillies right now because the yeah. D. Gregorius and JT Realmuto are free agents. That Yeah, that was, that was where my mind, my mind went with that equation as well. Uh, definitely not the Braves. I'd say probably not the Mets. Um, I mean, he would be one of the better hitters on the Marlins. And then, right, like you said, too, it depends on what the Phillies end up doing in this offseason. So, I mean, I mean, the Nationals are trying. And, and part of what I thought was interesting about this, too, is, I mean, this Nationals team really isn't all that different from the World Series 2019 team. You still have that elite starting pitching. And then there is definitely a drop-off from Rendon to Bell. But maybe it's not so steep to suggest they couldn't be a playoff team in 2021. Especially, and this also depends, of course, on how many playoff teams there are in 2021. If it's a 10-team miss, I'm doubtful they can make it because it seems like the Padres are a lock for the wild card of the Dodgers winning the NL West because they're, of course, loaded and the reigning World Series champions. And then other wild card teams includes the Reds, Cardinals, the Brewers, the Cubs, the Marlins, the Phillies, the Mets, and then also the Nationals. So with the Nationals, don't really seem like the best team of that, of that bunch. But if there's 16 teams, that still looks great for them. Of course, they still have their big three in the rotation, all of them absorbing 120 million plus out of those three pitchers. And then Juan Soto's might be the best player in the game. There's a case to be made for him. So they're not a bad team, but they still struggle off the bullpen. They still lost guys like Adam Eden and Ryan Zimmerman in the past couple of years. And of course, Bryce Harper before then, before the World Series. So they're not the big offensive hitting team that they once were. Definitely. They, they're a step back from the 2019 World Series Nationals that we saw. Um, but, you know, I, I would agree with you, too, that if there is an expanded playoffs, I would definitely go ahead and pencil in the Nationals. But I, I'm with you again and that if it is a 10-team field, I would be a little more skeptical about them making it in. Especially uh, because, like you, you started the list there, Adam, there, there are so many fringe teams in the NL. And I don't think that Josh Bell puts you head and shoulders above any of those teams in the whole league, let alone in the NL East. 
I, I still don't think that makes them all better than the Phillies uh, or, or the Mets for that matter, and, and certainly not better than the Braves. Uh, so still some work to be done on offense for the Nationals. They, they need to add some more bats to that lineup. But with a big three like Strasburg, Corbin, and Scherzer, uh, I mean, you know, they never – they're not going to be terrible. They're going to be competitive, at least around a 500 ball club. And who knows from there, maybe some things break their way and they end up being a playoff team and, and kind of sneak in there like 2019 style and then surprise some people. Who knows? The purpose of the Josh Bell trade wasn't to make them an instant contender. It was more because at first base, there was a black hole last year between Eric Thames and Howie Kendrick. So Bell might be top 15 first baseman in the league or so, even though he had a down year. So to have that instead of those two combined is certainly an upgrade for the Nationals. And they've also been heavily linked to JT Realmuto too. He's definitely a possibility that could go to their team, even though it would cost a pretty penny. So the Nationals are far from not making any more moves this offseason. They'll still add to their team, of course, but they still have a lot of struggles. I think you make a great point there too, Adam, that this could be a precursor to more to come, that if it's a one-two punch with Josh Bell and somebody else, uh, then that would definitely make that lineup more formidable. And I, you know, I think that, um, that would, you know, that's, that's going to be a good move for the nationals if they can go out and get somebody like JT real Muto to where maybe Bell doesn't transform that lineup by himself, but perhaps that signals that they are uh, buying into contending in 2021, or at least trying to, uh, so it could signal that, that they're in the market to add another bat to that lineup. So if they do go out and, and add another guy, maybe a JT Real Muto, perhaps even a George Springer, even though there's there's not a whole lot of room in that outfield. Uh, but yeah, that's not a name that I've heard linked there to Washington very much. I was just trying to throw an impact bat out there. But if the Nationals can go out and, and get another guy, that lineup doesn't look so bad all of a sudden. And their lineup still is promise, even though Robles has not shown too much with the bat. He's still only in his uh, young 20s. And then you have Carter Keyboom, who's an up-and-coming prospect that's going to be starting for the team. So they still have players to work with. But nevertheless, when they got Josh Bell, they had to give up more of their organizational depth, which they don't really have too much to start with. And just by comparison, both – I think it was uh, Will Crow who went from the Nationals' number three prospect to the Pirates' number 17 organizational prospect which just shows how different the two systems are and these are some decent prospects they're not your mlb ready prospects per se are not going to dominate the majors but bill crow got his first cup of coffee in 2020 and he pitched 11.88 era in three games yeah. but he also yeah <laughs> only three games but yeah yeah only three games which isn't a big deal but he also was a couple years removed from just winning Carolina League Pitcher of the Year honors in 2018 in high A ball. So he has promise. And then you have Eddie Yeen, of course, who's in rookie ball. And he had a pretty nice 2019 campaign where he jumped from rookie ball to A ball and did well in both places. And he can top out at 97 miles per hour. So there's some promise there. Maybe not ace level starters per se, but could be back in the rotation arms. My first impression looking at this trade was that I kind of liked it for the Pirates. When when you look, like you said, Adam, you get the number three and the number six prospect in the Nationals organization. Um, but then I, I dug in a little bit deeper and I found what you mentioned there, that the Nationals are one of the weaker farm systems in baseball. 
Um, and, and the pirates are, are significantly better. So maybe those guys aren't, aren't slotting in quite as highly in that pirate system. But, um, yeah, like you said, these are young pitchers who, who seem to have some upside. I'm very interested to see them, uh, struggle with the pirates and then go on to be all-star MVP type players with other teams, uh, a la uh, Tyler Glass now or Garrett Cole. I'm sure that'll happen somewhere down the line. That, that's always seems to be how it goes for pirate pitchers. But, I, I mean, I like the deal for the Pirates and that, I mean, I don't think they're going to be good in any time before Bell's contract would have expired anyway. Um, so, I mean, maybe Bell could have been a foundational piece that they resign and make a franchise guy, but he hasn't totally looked like a sure thing. Uh, and it's really only been that first half of the 2019 season. So I think this made sense for the Pirates to go ahead and cash out the asset and get, get some prospects with some promise and hopefully be able to build for the future because it's going to be at least a couple more years of rebuilding for Pittsburgh. Actually, where my school at, we're only an hour and a half out from Pittsburgh. So a lot of Pirates fans are having the worst time right now because they want their team to be in contention again. They obviously were really good during the McCutcheon years and then they fell off and really couldn't get too deep in the postseason. Also traded Starling Marte in the regular season this past year. So, yeah, they're definitely going to have some tough times ahead of them. But it's nice that they're adding a couple prospects, and hopefully that will help them out in the long run too. Yeah, and, and if you're a rebuilding team, then getting top 10 prospects from other teams' organization, that's that's kind of the name of the game. That's what you get excited about. And I know it kind of sucks. It's the long game. And I, as a Cubs fan myself, we did that not so long ago, and we might be doing that not so soon from now. So – it's part of the game, and it, it, I mean, it really it takes some patience, and it can be frustrating. I, I know you you as a Yankees fan, Adam, you all haven't had all that many rebuilding years. It's, it's kind of more retooling, but I, for, for the, I, I'm not, the, not like the Cubs are a smaller market team or anything, but for a team like Pittsburgh where you're not necessarily going to go out and, and spend huge in free agency, I think this is probably the, the proven game plan for improving your team in the long term. I think the biggest question with this deal for the Pirates is could, should they have waited another year to see if Bell would rebound and then try to trade him then? Or was this the right time to trade him? Because he's still only a year removed from 37 home runs. And he also everyone had a very strange 2020 season, a very strange 2020 year. So there's pros and cons to trade him now. They obviously got some value from him. They obviously wouldn't be contenders by 2022 or 2023, rather, when he's going to become a free agent. So it still makes sense for them to trade him now and for him to have team control and not let him, I guess, show that 2020 was not a fluke. That's a great point there too, Adam, that I don't, I don't know how, you know, how do you even value a 2020 season, a 60 game season and, and all the randomness in that. And I mean, it seems like the pirates still got a pretty decent haul and, and getting highly rated prospects from the national system. So maybe the Nats weren't buying too much into the 2020 down year. And so maybe, yeah, maybe it would have made more sense for the Pirates to wait for a rebound. Um, but, I mean, looking at the haul they got back, I mean, maybe you risk Josh Bell kind of having another downish year and then you get something worse. So maybe it's a, it's a safe play, I guess, from the Pirates to go ahead and, and get the respectable offer from the Nationals now. I agree with you, Henry. It's not a big risk for the Pirates, of course. The Nationals, it's a little bit of a risk, but even then, they are still upgrading at first base, which at the end of the day helps them out. And I think they're still in this contention window, which is more fringe than a year ago, but 
they're still there and they still don't really have too many prospects that are up and coming right now or prospects that are going to graduate anytime soon. Yeah, there's there's not help on the way, a stud first baseman, a Pete Alonzo type guy coming up from the Nationals. So given that context, yes, it, it definitely does make sense to go ahead and get a kind of a safe bet in Josh Bell. And that, like you said, he's he's a middle of the pack, at least first baseman, a top 15 type guy. And you shore up that position and help the lineup that's a struggling lineup. So I think this could be a trade that ends up working out for both teams. It seems more of a win-win situation than a win-lose situation. Maybe it looks a little better from the Pirates side, but Nationals are still ending up with a, a solid player who could turn out to be really good for them. Absolutely, man. I'm I'm excited too, like I said, to see how Josh Bell does in a lineup where they can't pitch around him so much. And definitely I would think the counting stats will benefit a little bit. Uh, I mean, if, if he comes in batting three or four or – and you have Juan Soto and Trey Turner ahead of him, he could very easily be a 100-plus RBI guy. He could, because Juan Soto's an on-base machine. He gets on a 40% clip, so that could help him out. And he even had 100-plus RBIs in 2019, so that could be repeated in 2021. Yeah, and, and that was in the terrible, terrible Pittsburgh Pirates offense. So I would, I don't know, maybe Josh Bell looks a little bit better in a different uniform and Maybe uh, definitely a scenery change has, has benefited other former Pirates. So we'll see if the Josh Bell uh, can have a similar effect. But some other transaction news. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot this week to report on, but the White Sox going out and signing Yolkis Suspedes out of Cuba. And when I first saw that in our outline, Adam, I kind of thought that was a typo. I was like, is, is Yoenis Suspedes going to go and, and be on, a white, on the White Sox? But no. It is his half-brother out of Cuba receiving a $2 million signing bonus. And he was actually regarded as the number one international prospect. Adam, what was what were your impression? Or I'm sorry, what was your impression of this signing? So obviously being part of the Cespedes family, Yoka's obviously has seems like he has a high ceiling, but he's only 5'9, which is really weird because that <laughs> seems almost like a Mookie Betts type outfield. He seems very well rounded too, but then when you look at his old stats. Just 12 home runs in 262 professional games. So, and a below 750 OPS in 169 games in the Cuban National Series, where he played from 2015 to 2018. So, I feel like it's a little bit over, he's a little bit overrated. And I was a little surprised that he was even rated that highly, but apparently he has the tools that can make him a star. And I wouldn't necessarily doubt it considering the family name. I was, I agree with you too. I was a little bit surprised to hear that he was the number one international prospect, especially considering the guy that we're going to talk about next in the show. Uh, no spoilers, but I, I kind of agree with you too, Adam, that I thought it was maybe, maybe the family name kind of carrying that value there. Um, not to take anything away from Yolkis, uh, which honestly, I, I didn't even know he existed before we started researching the show. This is the first I've heard of him. I should probably pay a little bit more attention to the international player pool. But like you said too, Adam, the Cuban stats don't really jump off the page for you. Um, it, I mean, it kind of makes me wonder if this guy wasn't really able to dominate in Cuba. Is is he going to be all that great in the MLB? Or is he going to make an instant impact in the MLB even? Maybe he has to work his way up to the White Sox farm system first. Um, I would suspect they, they probably do start him off in the minors before giving him major league action. But when you think about, you know, a guy, a number one international prospect, I would expect kind of like a 
900 plus OPS in, in Cuban baseball. And, and like you said, Adam, it was much, much lower. It was like mid 700s, right? Yeah, it was around like 745 or so. That was his OPS about in about 169 Cuban national games. So I was surprised by that. I feel like most big name players that we hear from foreign countries have ridiculous off the chart stats and they usually end up being about average players in the majors. So it does seem like he will have to work his way in the minors a bit. And even then, will he really be better and really join the White Sox in 2021 to help them? Because they're already set in in uh, center field with Luis Robert. And they they also have another player in their outfield too. Well, they, at least they have um, Adam Eden now. Yeah, that's, that's the player they just signed. So they have those two. And then who's going to play left? It could be Larry Garcia. It could be Adam Engel. And maybe that's where Yoelkis or Yolkis can fit in the mix. But even then, is he really that much better than them? So it'll be interesting to see where they get to or where he gets to in 2021. And I don't think there's much in the track record where we could definitively say that he's better than any of those guys. Uh, certainly, I would think Adam Eaton, definitely a more proven asset and somebody who I expect the White Sox to give the benefit of the doubt. Um, but I mean, a guy coming from Cuba is is always a little bit of a wild card and you can't be quite sure exactly what to suspect. Um, sometimes you, you're not exactly sure how the level of play translates over to the MLB. Um, so, I mean, it could be a, a pleasant surprise for the White Sox and it's not too huge of an investment to where I'm going to, you know, automatically say this was a bad move or anything. Um, and you know, he certainly has the family pedigree and, and maybe he can, kind of live up to his big brother's reputation and be another power bat. And hopefully he doesn't have the injury history that his brother had. And I, and I would love to see Yoenis Cespedes uh, end up back on another MLB roster. Has, has he signed with anybody, Adam? I don't know. I, let me double check because I know that the Mets had some strange, something strange with him. I don't think he's exactly on the Mets right now or going to go mad to them any anytime soon. Cause he kind of just, I thought he just like left in the middle of the season. I know he opted out, um, but it, it kind of seemed like he, he had like not informed the team or of anything. I know there was a period yeah. last year. He had just like disappeared and no one knew where he was. But, yeah. You, that's what happened. And the Mets did play some of the restricted list in 2020. So he is a free agent and he's really not a free agent that you're hearing all too much in free agency too, because he's, even though he's 35 years old, he's still a power bat. And, he still has a pretty decent arm in the outfit. I remembers that 300 foot throw yeah. that he made with the A's. So, you know, he's still an impressive player, of course. And his brother doesn't seem like as much of a power hitter. He seems more line to line, very fast, has burgeoning power because he put 15 pounds of muscle this past year. So there's obvious reasons why that he's very high up on the international prospect list, but it will, of course, we'll have to see where he ends up in 2021 with the White Sox, how far he goes up on their organizational depth. And definitely still a young guy too, uh, 23 years old. So perhaps more of a long-term play for the White Sox and maybe see how he develops in the farm system. Uh, I don't have super high hopes for him in 2021, uh, but maybe, you know, he's a September call-up who ends up making a difference in the postseason. And this definitely a White Sox team that I would expect to be I mean, probably if I had to say right now, I would say my favorite to win the AL Central. So definitely a team that could use some some September call-ups coming to, to give some reinforcements, bolster that lineup, and 
maybe it's an upside play that ends up working out for him. But, you know, given I was a little bit surprised, I guess, to see him get a contract before his his much proven half or much more proven half brother, Jonas. Yeah, that is pretty surprising. I think we just haven't heard Cespedes' name in the free agency market too much or in the news as much after he opted out of the season. So that probably has to do with it too. But I think he also really complements the White Sox lineup as well because they have a ton of power in Eloy Jimenez and Jose Abreu and even Tim Anderson offers some pop. So he offers some nice speed. And he could be really good September call-up and help them out in the postseason as well. I will say, too, uh, to, to add a pessimistic note into the end here, that it kind of underscores further for me that the Tony Larusa signing is, is that much weirder, uh, that you continue to add to this youth movement, and especially a youth movement that's it's kind of centered on international players. And then your manager is like an 80-year-old white guy at doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, uh, especially when you have a manager of the year candidate last year who was much younger and who was, uh, I mean, I don't want to assume anything, but you would think perhaps better able to relate to the, the Latin core of players. Um, so I think that's, that's just another note that I, I think the Tony La Russa signing is, is all that much weirder and that's not even commenting on his DUI. Uh, but still, I think the future is definitely bright for the White Sox. And I don't think that managerial signing will, will hold them back too much in 2021. I wouldn't be surprised if he's a one and done. And it's also very strange too, because Marissa's already in the hall of fame and you would think he would just kind of retire by now. And he's still, you know, held executive positions in the last few years, but taking on a team like the White Sox with your very young core, it's, it's a strange signing to say the least. And also the White Sox knew about his DUI and are fine with it. And, you know, I think there's obviously room for, the White Sox move past that, but you still don't want to sign a manager beforehand knowing that. I feel like there's better options. And of course, in Rick Renteria too, a former Cubs manager as well. And he was also, what, second in manager of the year award. So he deserved to be on the White Sox team in 2021, but instead is in search of a job. Yeah, and I'm I'm a little bit surprised he maybe hasn't been hasn't been signed yet. I thought Rick Renteria might have been picked up faster. I, I still think he's one of the better managerial candidates left out there on the market. And I agree with you too, Adam. I thought he deserved to stick around and and kind of reap the benefits of that White Sox team that he's built up over these last few years. And they're just now ready, it seems, to break through and and be a true contender. And then you have a manager of the year candidate, and you show him the door for one of the manager's best friends who. Uh, there, there's a million things you can criticize about that signing. Uh, but, you know, we'll see how it works out for the White Sox. More power to them. And and I don't want to, like, totally only cover the negatives of Tony La Russa. You said it, Adam. He is a Hall of Famer. He is a multi-time World Series winner. And I'm sure he can still – he still has something to teach these young core guys. And, and I shouldn't suggest that an old manager – there's no way he can break through to the young core. I'm sure he will find a way to connect to these players. I just, this team definitely, with all the young managers and the former players that we see being signed, this seemed like a team to go out and get the next like 40 year old former player manager. And, you know, your Paul Canerco could have been the White Sox manager, but we didn't see it happen. And maybe he will be a one and done. And he certainly won't be around all that long because he is, he is an old man. Yeah. Well, you're, 
ideas about how Tony Russo might not be great for the White Sox is actually a very common idea expressed in the industry right now and how there are doubts about if he can handle the team. And, of course, he is a Hall of Fame manager. Maybe he'll surprise all of us. Maybe he'll be this great guy who offers a nice blend of speed and power, which everyone knows the White Sox have in their lineup. And we'll use that to the full advantage because a lot of teams aren't using speed as much. And maybe that was some of the basis for signing him. But we'll have to see how it plays out. And either way, of course, a manager doesn't, a manager obviously could affect the clubhouse a lot and could affect the performance of play. But the White Sox will still be a contending team in 2021. I love the point you made about speed there, Adam. That's something I hadn't really thought a whole lot about. But the Rick Renteria never really let the White Sox run. You have Yoena Cespedes, Nick Madrigal, uh, Luis Robert, guys who stole a lot of bases in the minor leagues. And they get up to the major league level, and you, it seems like you're not using that asset anymore. So maybe Tony Larusa going to let them steal a little bit more bases. And, and stealing bases, uh, it seems like something that should be new school baseball, but it, it is old school baseball. So maybe we'll see a little bit more of that in 2021 for the White Sox. I love that point, man. I appreciate it. I would just like to see more stolen bases together. Remember when Trout was stealing 30 bases a year? I, I don't even think he stole five or as much as five in 2020, which is bizarre to think about because he's still one of the fastest players on the planet. And even... Jose Altuve stole 56 bases just a few years back. He's not even stealing around 20 anymore because once you develop power in the major leagues, apparently you can't steal bases anymore because everyone else has power. You want to protect them, but it makes the game so much more fun, which is why players like Tatis Jr. and Acuna Jr. have been so exciting in the game right now. I love stolen bases, man. And, and I totally, I think of that from a fantasy baseball lens too, where that's the most scarce category. You, you've got to get your steals. Nobody runs anymore. So when you do have your Jose Altuve's, uh, your, your Ronald Acuna, your Fran T uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. who go out there and steal bases, they're that much more valuable. And it is. It's, it's one of the more exciting plays in the game. So I, I would love to see more of those going forward. And hopefully we see more for the White Sox. Uh, but another signing uh, that we have to discuss, Kohi Ariana, am I pronouncing that correctly? The the Japanese signing uh, for the Rangers, Adam. Uh, I am not sure, but let's go with that. <laughs> let's go with how <laughs> you described it. Yeah, might not get a clear answer even just from a Google Translate search about his name. So, we'll, we'll go with that. Kohi Ariana signing a two-year, six-point-two million deal, uh, million dollar deal excuse me with the rangers a 1.24 million dollar posting fee uh, of course coming over from japan the nippon ham fighters that's a heck of a team name props to them uh but pretty impressive stats in, in 2019 15 and 8 with a 246 era and a 0.92 whip and uh he's got pretty good stuff is that right adam he has good stuff but he's not considered that's tanaka or darvish or otani and really out of the bunch, you might have to say that Darvish had the most promise out of the three. And and obviously as was second place in the NL Cy Award race in 2020. So once again, this goes with uh, Cespedes also. But when players come from forward countries into the major leagues, they often struggle or not as highly touted as they were in their previous league. So he, he was obviously a great pitcher in 2019. He's obviously a very good pitcher in the... Nippon Professional Baseball League, which is a Japanese professional baseball league. So he'll be a nice back of the rotation starter. And based on the contract again, he won't be 
probably high, as highly touted as Tanaka or Darvish or even Otani, but he's still a nice pickup for Texas. And I do really appreciate you mentioning you, Darvish, Adam. I wanted, I knew looking through the outline that I wanted to use this segue. Uh, that was actually one of my favorite Christmas gifts that I received. I got my you Darvish jersey on right now. Thank you, Aunt Steph, Uncle Jim, and the cousins. I really appreciate it. But yeah, another another great Japanese pitcher who signed with the Rangers. Uh, so a little bit of deja vu there. And Pretty, pretty good stuff. Pretty good numbers we've seen from Ariana in, in the Japanese league. And it's it's not a huge risk for the Rangers. It, it's not a huge dollar amount. So, I mean, I think it's an upside play. And and you take that chance hoping that you may have the next Tanaka, the next Darvish, the next Otani. And if if Ariana can end up being close to some of those guys, um, I mean, I think it still could end up being a pretty good signing. I mean, even if he's Yusei Kikuchi, I think – I mean, for that amount of money, that's that's definitely. I mean, you don't have to be all that great to earn three million dollars a year as a starting pitcher. That's that's like a four something ERA in today's game. And I would imagine that he'll probably be around that margin too. I think the weirdest thing about this deal is why would the Rangers go after after this foreign pitcher? Because they don't look like contenders in 2021, and even though they're fringe contenders a couple of years back. They also trade away Lance Lynn. They trade away Normar Mazzara a couple of years back. And so it's a little bit of an odd signing for them and not really someone that you heard too much on the free agency market. But, hey, he's a nice back in rotation start. He adds to their rotation. Maybe there's a possible trade down the line where they flip him for something and he didn't cost too much. But besides that, I can't really think of any other reasons why the Rangers would go after him. And I love the point you made at the end there, Adam, that I this definitely screams like a guy who could be uh, – you sign him and then he has a great first half and you try and flip him at the deadline. And that, you know, for a team in the Rangers position, that definitely would help with the rebuild slash retooling process. And it does seem a little bit odd given that context, like you mentioned, Adam, that they haven't really been been buyers in the free agent market so far. And you, you've seen a lot of their guys moving on to other destinations. Um, so. Yeah, maybe it is a little bit weird. Usually we kind of expect this type of move for a team that is close to being a contender or already being a contender, trying to push them over the top. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do kind of like the the sign and then trade it at the, at the midseason kind of aspect of it, that this could be a flip for prospects kind of move for the Rangers. I also think the Rangers just need another piece in their rotation because they trade away Lynn. They didn't pick up Corey Kluber's contract, so they don't really have too many other guys besides Kobe Allard or Kyle Gibson or even Jordan Lyles. So they maybe just want to uh -huh. fill up their rotation a bit, and like like we've talked about, maybe they just want to flip him at some point too because he doesn't cost too much. And even once again, going back to Tanaka or Darvish or Otani, the posting fee wasn't that much. He didn't cost too much of a contract, so he's not as highly touted as these other players, but he can still be a nice move for them. And, and I think it's perhaps, uh, you know, it's a sign of, of more things to come in the pitcher's market. We've seen a little bit of, of action heating up in the past uh, few days, past week or so. So we, we have a couple more moves to discuss later in the show, too. And, you know, as we see more starting pitchers going off the board, perhaps the, the market starts to heat up for your your Trevor Bauer types. And we, we finally see a destination for the big fish out there in the starting pitcher free agent market. But 
you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad move for the Rangers. It, it's kind of low risk, and who knows what the what the reward will end up being. And like I said, those international signings kind of always a wild card. Hard to, hard to know exactly how the numbers will translate over to the MLB level. And I guess probably too early at this point to to cast judgment on the Rangers' move. And we'll see. They'll they'll either look really smart or. I don't think they'll end up looking really dumb just because you know it's not like they're going out and signing this guy to like an eighty million dollar contract or anything. Uh, but we'll see. Who knows? <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned the low risk, high reward aspect of the Ariana sign- signing because that's exactly it. Even if he falls and to the face of the earth and doesn't produce for the Rangers, well, he didn't cost them too much, and they're also not contenders right now. So there really is no risk by signing him. The Rangers went out of their way to make a move and perhaps they'll flip him. Perhaps he'll just be a nice piece in the rotation, but either way, it's a little bit of a head scratcher, but still a nice, nice pickup for them. And with the new ballpark, you, you got to give the fans at least the illusion that you're, you're trying to contend for next year. You gotta, you gotta sell those tickets, especially with, with all the money that I'm sure they did lose in the 2020 season. It's going to be a year to sell tickets in, in 2021. That is for sure. So I would, I, you know, I would expect, teams to at least try to throw some kind of bone to the fans. You saw my Cubs go out and get uh Philip Irvin, the former red uh, later this week. That, that wasn't even a big enough blip in the radar to make a full uh, bullet point for our show. And, and it shouldn't have been either. I don't, I don't expect that to be too major a move, but I guess that's, that's the Cubs trying to do something like, Hey, look, we're, we're trying to get better for 2021, but yeah, I mean, you it's you got to try and do something, I guess, if you're if you're one of those teams and and I think this move could end up making sense for the Rangers. There's certainly a lot of ways that can work and it's not as much of a head scratcher at least as Sam Fold becoming the general manager of the Phillies and I was just completely shocked by this and it wasn't even very outspoken that he was also being considered as a manager for several teams and there's this weird baseball saying that or not even a saying but just I guess nor- normalcy in baseball were players that weren't really great in their MLB career make great managers. And I think that's what they're expecting out of Sam Fold or why he was so popular as a managerial managerial choice. I mean, he did go to Stanford. He was a great outfielder, but to make him just GM, I was just completely taken aback by that. Because usually you have business executives in there, but it's at least not uncommon, especially with the Rangers signing Chris Young a few weeks ago to make, to be their GM. I, I agree, Adam. I, I did think it was a little bit unusual. It was not something that I was expecting at all. I'm excited to see a former Cub getting the getting the chance to run the Phillies organization. Uh, but yeah, definitely weird, man. A guy who was like just interviewing for manager positions who's never mind, I'm actually I'm gonna be a GM now. It's a, a completely different thing than than running the on-field product versus building the on-field product. And, and like you said, too, definitely something where we see more guys with the business background. And and there have been some former players who have been successful in that role. And interesting, too, to see uh, two signings so close to each other. But Chris Young, like you mentioned, with former players getting the getting the call to be the GM. Um, it'll be interesting. I, you know, I was kind of thinking Theo Epstein may make his way over to Philly uh, and run the show there. But that obviously not happening. Sam Fold uh, running the show. And it definitely was surprising for me as well, Adam. And and I really have no idea what to make of it. I, I don't really know much of anything about Sam Fold's front office career. It's It's been a pretty brief career. So I 
maybe a wild card hire for the Phillies here, and we'll see how it works out. He was the Phillies MLB coordinator starting in 2017, so he has a little bit of front office experience, but that's a really quick turnaround to go from MLB player coordinator for a couple of years to a general manager. And you also hit a nail on that one about how he was interviewing to be a manager. He was literally a finalist for the Red Sox before they decided to go back with Alex Cora. And then he's certainly the GM. So it's very strange, but I don't think we're going to see this giant wave of player turned GMs with little experience. I feel like this is more of a coincidence than anything else. There have been players turned GMs such as Billy Bean or Branch Rickey or Jerry Depoto with the Mariners. So it's happened before. It's not unheard of, but just the lack of experience, which is really surprising. It is. Usually you, you see guys with a little bit more of a front office track record get that nod. Um, but I mean, best of luck to Sam Fold uh, moving forward. And yeah, I, I agree with you too. I don't, I don't think this is a sign that there's a, a great wave of former players coming as GMs in the future. I do think that wave is, is much more still centered on the managerial position that we're going to continue to see these former players can go on to be managers, uh, especially young former players, guys who are kind of fresh off of their careers, still able to connect with the players. And I think that makes a lot more sense. And, and those relationships, I think, are more of an asset in the managerial position where you're in the dugout with those guys every day versus it certainly, I'm sure it does help to, you know, have that baseball experience when it comes to building a team as the GM, but it, it seems like it would be more of an advantage being a manager to me. Well, I think something interesting to note is that the managerial position is not like what it once was. Pretty much the front office tells the manager to do everything. And we even saw that perhaps in the World Series this year when Blake Snow had a terrific World Series star and they took him out because of analytics and because Nick Anderson looked really good during the regular season, even though his last eight appearances or so, he was god-awful in the postseason. So we're seeing more of that happen front office and managers really just leading a clubhouse rather than even setting the lineup, which was something that they always used to do. And they are the ones running it down, but they're also getting direct orders from their GM. So maybe Fold will, maybe that's how he convinced the Phillies to do that. Maybe he's going to bring some of that managerial aspect, but it's still a completely different ball game nonetheless to both control the lineup and control what goes on and also make all those trades and have all those responsibilities. So it's weird how he applied for a manager and a GM and how he even got a GM position. That's another great point there too, Adam, that maybe kind of the lines between those two positions have, have certainly blurred in recent years. And maybe it does in that sense, make more sense uh, to have a guy who has that, he is a former player kind of fresh out of the game and, someone who you think could could be both a manager and a GM, especially, you know, if they're going to be handing down the lineup card. Uh, that kind of reminded me of the Joe Girardi managerial search. Uh, I, I think it was like the Mets or something where he was interviewing for them and then they had said, you can be the manager, but the, we're going to give you the lineup card from the front office every day. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. And he ended up signing with the Phillies. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe some pushback still to, to that kind of front office style. And, and that's certainly not for every manager, but it definitely does seem like something that is becoming more and more prominent in the game. And definitely the responsibilities of the front office are, are growing and growing each season and they're becoming more and more powerful. They are. And that's probably why we're, all, we're seeing all these new managers who have never managed a game in their lives and were former players and then just get to the position because, they can just do what the front office tells them to do. And then also they know what it's like to be part of a clubhouse. So 
perhaps that's why that wave is happening. Of course, that isn't the case with GMs, but as we mentioned, still very weird that Chris Young, a 14 or 13 year MLB vet, got that too, if only a couple years as uh, senior vice president of Major League Baseball, which is a very high position, a much higher position, of course, than Sam Fold had in his executive career. But even then, it was just very fast for both of these GMs and came out of nowhere, too. It didn't even seem like they were finalists for the hunt. They somehow made their way to this very high position. Yeah, I don't know about you, man. I hadn't seen Sam Fold's name anywhere uh, discussed in this GM hire, uh, this GM hire process. It was totally out of left field for me, which fitting. I think Sam Fold might have used to play left field. It was, it was outfield somewhere. I should remember, but he wasn't a Cub for very long in my, in my defense. But other than that, uh, we do have a couple other uh, signings going on across the league. I alluded to it earlier in the show. Uh, the starting pitcher lineup or the starting pitcher market uh, rather heating up a little bit. You got Matt Andrees signing to a one-year $1.85 million deal uh, with the Red Sox. The Red Sox certainly needed some help with starting pitching after losing Rick Porcella before last year. Chris Sale, pretty, pretty giant uh, question mark for them. I know that Eovaldi had had some, some loose body issues in his elbow as well. Uh, and Ed, Ed, Eduardo Rodriguez, I know he, he has had some upside, but I know he struggled at times as well. And I think he's had a little bit of an injury history too. Uh, so maybe make sense for the Red Sox go out and then try and shore up that starting uh, rotation a little bit. And I think Andres is a guy who, who may be able to slot into the bullpen as well for them. So some versatility in that signing. Uh, so I, I think that makes sense for the Red Sox. Uh, and then we see Jose Urena, the longtime Marlin, signing with the Tigers on a one-year $3.25 million deal. Adam, are, are the Tigers World Series contenders now with Jose Urena added? I mean, maybe we'll see some interesting fights if Acuna Jr. plays the Tigers and the Braves do too, because he's, of course, notoriously known for throwing at him and there's a huge brawl, but he won't make the Tigers championship champion coward team anytime soon. But it is a nice upside for them, especially if he's on rotation. He's a hard thrower, and he's had success in the past. He's had a couple of rough years, but it makes sense for him to send the Tigers. I was actually more surprised that it, they, they costed that much. I was a little bit surprised that he got $3.25 million, But, hey, he's been in the league for a while, so I guess that's more respect than anything else. That was my impression as well. I, I was surprised. I didn't think he's really done all that much with his uh, Miami career to – Warrant that big of a paycheck, but I mean, he's been a steady veteran, I suppose, which the Tigers could certainly use. There's there's not much veterans or not many veterans, I should say, at all on that roster and not many decent starting pitchers to write home about. They do have some prospects making their way up to who could be excited about uh, some Spencer Turnbull, Casey Mize. Uh, gosh, what's the other guy's name? I'm, it's like, I know uh, there's another guy. Yeah. It's like Tariq something, Tariq Skubal or something. Yeah, like no, that. I think you got it right. I think you got it right. Yeah, he's 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 flashed some upside too. Definitely making his way into the Tigers fixture, and he was even appeared in 2020 as well. I mean, so maybe Jose Arena is kind of a, a veteran clubhouse guy to maybe show the ropes to some of those younger guys, teach them a thing or two, and, and help set up the Tigers for a future. Uh, I, you know, I, I was obviously joking and I don't think that he makes them a world series contender or anything, but I mean, if you're the tigers and you have plenty of money to spend, I, I don't think a one year, $3 million contract really matters all that much to you. 
What matters is getting that Miguel Cabrera money off the books somehow, which they are trapped in, in one of the worst contracts in baseball right now. It honestly is sad to see him just fall from grace because everyone loves Mickey's. He's just a character to begin with. He's an easy first ballot Hall of Famer. And to see him just kind of like slug his way through injuries these last few years, at some point the Tigers might even cut him. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case because they, you know, just don't really have a place to put him. And he also hasn't really been producing for them, but he's been the face of the franchise for forever. So might just wait until the end of his deal. Yeah, it, it is definitely sad to see the the decline of Miggy and Maybe, I mean, that goes with the lineup around him as well. Kind of, we were talking about Josh Bell earlier in the show, that when you're in a terrible lineup like that, you maybe some of your flaws get more exposed and you're either going to get walked or you're going to get borderline pitches that you're going to get yourself out on. And we've seen a lot of that from Miguel Cabrera when he's been healthy in the last couple of years. He struggled to stay on the field as well. Uh, definitely, uh, it's, it's kind of been a crippling deal for the Tigers and, and the level of production they've gotten for giving him $30 million a year. Um, but, I mean, they don't have a whole lot of salary committed elsewhere. So maybe you can start to, to build back up with, I mean, maybe Jose Urena is a building block piece. I, I wouldn't really think so, but he could turn in a decent season and, you know, maybe he's a veteran who you want to stick around in your rotation and continue to help those young guys grow. And as we said with Ariana, perhaps he's someone that you could flip at the deadline too because – is a hearth run right. He's had success in the past and a couple other free agents that were signed this past week. And that's Tommy Canley, who has had success with the Rockies, the White Sox, and the Yankees. He had Tommy John surgery right before the season began in 2020, but the Dodgers signed to a two year, 4.75 million deal knowing this. And he's a great clubhouse present, total goofball with the Yankees. You should watch some videos on him sometimes because like he just messes with Zach Britton all the time, which is hilarious. And, be jumping around when players hit home runs in the in the bullpen. So he's a great guy, very sturdy reliever, great pickup for the Dodgers too. And even the Giants has their bullpen as well, signing John Brebia to a one-year $800,000 uh, deal. And he had a great couple, two seasons with the Cardinals this past couple of years. And they non-tendered him, which is a little strange because he was successful. It doesn't cost too much. But hey, the Giants had a reliever and it helps them out. I was surprised as well to see Brebbia get non-tendered by the Cardinals, and I think that could end up being a pretty good value signing uh, for the Giants, getting him for 800k on one year. That's def that's kind of the definition of of low risk, high reward for me, and definitely happy as well to to see Conley getting the uh, 4.75 million dollar deal coming off Tommy John's. That's a major vote of confidence for the Dodgers, and. The Dodgers continue to improve that bullpen, man. Um, they've got they've taken chances on guys like uh, I believe Brandon Morrow signed there, and then they got a uh, Knabel from the Brewers as well. It's huge upside plays and and guys that do carry a little bit of risk, all of them. But I mean, if if imagine if even two or three of those guys end up panning out, in addition to Kimley Jansen, and maybe you go out and sign a, a Liam Hendricks and. I think Blake Trinan may still be in the Dodgers. I don't know if his contract's expired or not, but he's a free agent. Okay, he's a free agent, but maybe they bring him back. There's there's still, regardless, there's a lot of upside in that Dodgers bullpen. And they're gonna be a team that's that's not going anywhere for a long, long time. The Dodgers set for now and set for the future. Uh when we were kind of looking through with that Josh Bell trade, I, I checked the farm system rankings around the league and 
I saw the Dodgers actually have a pretty strong farm system as well. So they're going to be here for, for the next decade or so, folks. So get used to seeing the Dodgers in the playoffs and contending for a World Series as much as I hate it. Uh, but it, I don't think, at least, I, I don't think the Dodgers are in on the the big fish that we have to discuss here at the end of the show, Adam. And that's that's Trevor Bauer. We haven't we haven't heard any Trevor Bauer to the Dodgers uh, rumors, have we? There's been a little bit, just because the Dodgers are a big market team. They have a bet, better chance than the Yankees at this point, I would say, because Yankees are really set on trying to re-sign LeMahieu, and they'll probably be their big free agent. But really, the three teams it comes down to for the Bauer market is the Mets the Angels, and the Blue Jays. And it's interesting because the Mets and Blue Jays have been a lot more aggressive this offseason, a lot more aggressive in recent years. The Mets with the Steve Cohen, Steve Cohen, excuse me, uh, ownership. You should know. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's a slip of the tongue there. But yeah, it'd be sad if I really thought his last name was anything different. And then the Blue Jays, of course, they got Hinjin Ryu a year ago. So... They're both they're both really trying to retool and are set on contending right now, so I wouldn't be surprised if either of them get it. But the Angels, of course, need Bauer the most, and he wouldn't. I don't think he would make them instant contenders, even though they have would have Bauer and Rendon and Trout. But he would help. He would be they're easily their best starter. He would help them out so much because their pitching is really really bad, probably the worst in the league, if not the worst. So. He would help them out, and they've been really pursuing him. And each of these three teams have offered him multi-year deals too. And it's actually another funny thing to note is that Bauer might get shot in the nuts if he ends up signing a big multi-year contract because that was the original deal he made with his friends, that he only could sign one-year deals in free agency. So I'm looking forward to seeing a momentum thing with Bauer because he has that YouTube channel, and he might get shot in the nuts for it in live television. Maybe he'll have to wear a cup, but it would be funny to see. Oh, that would be a cop out, man. That that's not part of the deal. You can't wear a cup for it. That that makes it like you're, it doesn't even hurt at that point. It's it's got to be some kind of punishment. But interesting to see the Bauer no longer considering a one year deal. Uh, just I guess interesting considering his his track record of always taking those one year deals. Not so interesting when you consider that he was the Cy Young in in 2020. And if you're the Cy Young, why not go ahead and sign you a little seven-year, 200-plus million-dollar contract, get you your guaranteed money and be set for life. I, I think that's the the no-brainer move for Bauer. And I do think all three of those teams do make sense, the, the Mets, the Blue Jays, and the Angels. Definitely teams that are kind of on the upswing and, and looking to spend a little bit of money in this offseason, which it'll take more than a little bit of money to to bring in Bauer's services. And I, I do think that the Angels could definitely benefit the most from his signing. I agree with you there, Adam. And I, I think they're a playoff team if you if you land Bauer. They're not World Series favorites by any means if you add them. But like you said, that pitching is so weak. And it's got to be for, for Dylan Bundy to be your best starter in this past season. Uh, so I think Trevor Bauer could solve a lot of their problems. He can't pitch every day. Uh, but, I mean, he's got – as much durability in that arm as, as anybody in the game. And I know last season with the kind of weird shortened season, he talked about how he was open to pitching on short rest, um, which, you know, that's not something you're going to do across 162 game season, but you get to the playoffs that could pay pretty huge dividends for the angels. I still do like Los Angeles to end up winning the Bauer sweepstakes, but I think the Mets or the blue Jays would be in a very interesting landing spot for him as well. 
I think Bauer to the Angels, this is going to sound controversial. It's a dumb move if that's the only thing they're doing this offseason. Because after Bauer and Bundy, what else do you have in that rotation? They don't really have anything. And Bauer, even if he has a five or six war season, which would be uh, tremendous for the Angels, and that'd be a great repeat and a great year after to his Cy Young campaign in 2020, that might not be enough for them to surpass the Astros or the A's or perhaps even make the playoffs. I, mean, I guess that depends on how many playoff teams there are. But right. if they can sign Bauer, maybe like a couple other of these minor starters on the market, that'd be a good deal. If they're just Bauer himself, that's not going to fix the angles. That's not going to make them a World Series contender. I, I would agree with you too. That that wouldn't solve all their pitching problems. It'd be a huge start, a huge step in the right direction. Uh, but as we as we started to talk about that that Angels rotation, that kind of made me wonder what's what's Otani's status for twenty twenty one. Is is he going to get significant innings as a starting pitcher? I think that's the plan right now. I think they want him to still be a starter pitch every fifth day, and then in between, act as a hitter. He's obviously proved himself as a hitter. He has success as a pitcher in Japan, but he's been really injury-prone. So hopefully he can be a two-way player because everyone wants to see that. Man, the Japanese Babe Ruth, man. We, we definitely want to see him playing both ways. If he can do that, it it's, makes him one of the more exciting players in the game. And he burst on the scene in 2019. He was a really, really effective starting pitcher prior to being shut down with Tommy Johns. I, I Granted, it was limited uh, sample size. I believe it was 50 or so innings for Otani in 2019, but it was a sub-3 ERA. It's, he's got upper 90s on his fastball, and then he can go and hit home runs and steal bases for you too. I think there's upside in that bullpen, and I, I think he could – him and Trevor Bauer would be a lot of fun to watch together, but – I do agree with you, Adam. I, I think they got to do something else if it is Trevor Bauer. But, I mean, if you don't get Trevor Bauer, then maybe enough. Uh, anything else wouldn't be enough for them. And you make a good point, too. It is still a very competitive division with the Astros and the A's moving forward. Uh, maybe the Rangers, not so much right now. But they're not, you know, they're not bottom feeders by any means. They could, they could still compete. Uh, the Mariners, unfortunately, kind of are bottom feeders uh, for them. But. They've got a decent farm system coming up, so maybe uh, Seattle will be there eventually. But yeah, the Angels have to do something, man. They're just wasting the Mike Trout years. It would be really sad to see Trout not even appear in a World Series that ends up happening during his career. And that was one of the reasons why people thought that he would maybe eventually sign with the Phillies or test for agency because he really hasn't had too much action in the postseason. So the Angels obviously want that to happen. I think they're having pool holes come off the book soon and as well as Justin Upton. So they'll have money to sign a big guy like Bauer, but they always seem to fill their books with tons of money and not really yet too far. So they have to ask themselves, is this a really big investment? What what additional pieces are we going to add alongside Bauer? That's, you know, I hadn't really thought about that either, Adam, that the angels do kind of had a bad uh, track record of, of not getting great return on their investment. And, could you be falling into the same trap again if, if you get a signed Trevor Bauer for expecting 2020 Trevor Bauer production and you get more of a 2019 Trevor Bauer season where he was like a four plus ERA guy. And, you know, he hasn't been this proven stud for his entire career. He's shown flashes, certainly. And, you know, he's, he's always stayed healthy, always had durability and always shown the stuff. Um, but 
you know, maybe he keeps manipulating his fastball spin rate like he did in, in this season, and we and we see the stats continue to be great for Trevor Bauer. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, Hugh Darvish, rightful 2020 NL Cy Young, and and I will rep them, I rep you until the day until the day I die. He is my Cy Young. He certainly had a great case to be the Cy Young Award winner, but I think we should also mention with Bauer about between the Mets and the Blue Jays, because I think, and this is also another fun prediction, I think whoever signs Bauer out of the two teams, the other team's going to sign George Springer, because both the Mets mm. and the Blue Jays are also connected to George Springer, and I feel like you couldn't sign both. They could, they have the money to do so, but it doesn't seem like either team to sign two big fishes in a limited pool. Especially given the, the financial context that we see kind of heading into the CBA argument that is inevitable after the end of next season, that no team really seems to be opening up the checkbooks uh, too extremely so far and in, in this offseason or any of the past few offseasons for that matter. I mean, there's been the huge, the, the Bryce Harper, the Manny Machado, the Garrett Cole signings, but haven't seen anybody really double up and, and get two of those guys in and, and quite a while. I'm struggling to think of the last time where any team has had two major free agent signings like that. So I, I think you make a great point there, Adam, that one of these losers of the Trevor Bauer sweepstakes could very well end up uh, getting a very fine consolation prize in George Springer. And both teams can use the hitting help too, especially with established hitter. If they get Bauer, then they have established ace. So, or more of an established ace, it's not established ace yet, but he can definitely bank on his 2020 campaign and he should be good in the future too. I'd, I'd, more or less call him an established ace. He, he's very close. He's knocking on the door, if, if not all the way there. And maybe, yeah, I don't know, I'd be a little bit nervous to throw up over $200 million contract at him. But at the same time, he was such a beast in 2020 that I, I think the production probably warrants it. So, And especially if you're a team that is, is so hungry for starting pitching, and if you're the Angels and you do have that Justin Upton, Albert Pujols money coming off the books, then maybe you're, you're more of in a position to take that risk. And that's ultimately, I do think it'll end up being the angels, but it's, you never know. And it, it'll probably take uh, still a little bit of time to find out. I know I saw an interview the other day where Bowers, Bowers uh, agent jokingly said, yeah, we're, we're closer every single day to him signing, but still really uh, no indication of when exactly that will be. And I think of a lot of these big free agents, and this is the case for Bauer and for Springer too, this might not happen until late January. And that's been the case in recent years as well. Even Bryce Harper, he signed into the next year when that happened, when he was his free agency class. So that's probably the way it's going to be this year and could even be delayed further. So expecting more slow off-season moves. But we will, of course, keep you updated. So stay tuned next week. will be our first podcast in 2021 which we are both looking forward to so until then happy holidays happy new year and until next time this is the exit view podcast